today we're doing something we haven't done for a long, long time. And I am preaching from what is known as an imprecatory psalm. And these are hard psalms. These are difficult words. So, prepare yourself. And we'll see what the Lord does with this. It is part of His Word. We don't want to avoid it, but we do need to make sure we understand it. So, with that said, we need to understand that God's judgment can leave the land desolate. Or a house desolate. Or a people desolate. Wind has swept the land of its crops. The farm animals have been sold and wandered off. The cities have been turned into ghost towns and the houses have been forsaken. What is that like? Well, we would think of the Great Depression combined with the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. A time when the banks pushed the sharecroppers off the land and the wind blew away the crops and the auctioneers sold the animals and the houses were left behind. What is it like for a house to be left behind? One of the greatest of all American novelists, John Steinbeck, describes it this way. The weeds sprang up in front of the doorstep where they had not been allowed, and grass grew up through the porch boards. Split started up the sheathing from the rusted nails. On the night, the wind loosened the shingle and flipped it to the ground. The next wind pried into the hole where the shingle had been, lifted off three, and the next a dozen. The wild cats crept in from the fields at night, but they did not mew at the doorstep anymore. They moved like shadows of a cloud across the moon into the rooms to hunt the mice. And on windy nights, the doors banged, and the ragged curtains fluttered in the broken windows. The point of hearing about forsaken houses is that they make you care about the people who used to live in them. You can feel the desolation. Maybe your feeling has a little bit the texture of compassion. In Psalm 137, God's people are camped along the rivers of Babylon, and they are weeping. They are humiliated and homesick. They know that back home their cities are ghost towns. The wind has swept the grass off the land the auctioneers have sold the animals, and in the houses around Jerusalem, the doors are banging, and the ragged curtains are fluttering in the broken windows. And so they sing. They long for Jerusalem. They ache for Jerusalem. They sang about Jerusalem. And we're going to learn one of those songs right now. I have some help. So we're going to sing it first together, and then we'll get creative. By the waters, the waters of Babylon, we lay down and wept, and wept. For thee, Zion, we remember thee, remember thee, remember thee, Zion. You got it? Okay, let's do it together. Bye. 
Thank you, thank you. It is kind of a sad song. It's supposed to be. It is a song of exile, a song of desperately wanting to go home, a song of justice, a song of wanting God to act. It is a song of anger, a song expressing pain that comes through living through hell. And it's a song of remembering a song asking God to keep his promises. And it's a song that if we sang the whole thing, none of us want to sing. Because it comes from our text this morning. Hear God's word. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there are captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A little bit harder to say that this morning, isn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the Psalms again this morning to learn more about how to deal with our pain and our anger and the injustice we see around us and how to pray about those things. And Lord, this is hard. These are difficult words. We would rather not read them We would rather not hear them, and we surely don't want to sing them. And we have no idea how you're going to use them. But you tell us to pray them. Lord, teach us how. Teach us what to say. Teach us what to think. Teach us how to pray. 
Build our faith. Draw us near. Help us to learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through this psalm of anger this morning. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. This entire psalm is placed in the mouths of the Jewish captives who were led naked and in chains towards Babylon after the sack of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. They had suffered through siege warfare. Siege warfare is brutal, and it generally ends badly. The soldiers are angry and frustrated at a long delay away from their families. And by the time they enter the city, they've often had buckets of human waste dumped on them over and over again as they attempted to batter down the gates or scale the walls. They're angry and they're out for revenge. The inhabitants of the city are usually starved, exhausted, and powerless to defend themselves. It's not hard to imagine what happened. The men were killed, the women were raped, the children were slaughtered, the families were ruined, and all the lives were torn apart. It became hell on earth. And that's what happened to these people. And that's what lies behind the writing of this psalm. We have to at least acknowledge that we have no real frame of reference for the depth of emotion that lies behind Psalm 137. We live in peaceful times. Our grandparents and great-grandparents who fought in World War II, who perhaps lived through the Great Depression, those who survived the reality of the Holocaust, they can likely relate to these verses much better than we can. They know the depths of brutality that people are capable of but that we in this generation are trying very hard to forget. But this happened to real people. And those real people lifted their hearts in prayer to God. And as hard as it is to believe, Psalm 137 is a prayer. A prayer that reflects the lowest notes of human emotions. It is a real prayer flowing out of a real experience And for that reason alone, it's worth wrestling with. Psalm 137 is one of the few psalms which makes clear its own historical context. The psalmist writes of the community of exiles sitting down by the waters of Babylon to weep. Now, the city of Babylon at that time, the surrounding country, was known for an extensive system of canals. They didn't use the word canals then. They were offshoots of the rivers nearby. And the Jewish exiles would at times retreat to different places of this river system in order to gather as a community and as the psalm makes clear to give voice to their grief. But why grief? The original Jewish singers of this psalm lived through the capture of Jerusalem, the looting and destruction of the temple, and their forced exile to Babylon. 2 Kings 25 describes the siege of Jerusalem as lasting for two years. Siege warfare usually resulted in surrender, often followed by death. 
Other times, starvation came upon them and would drive them insane. Sometimes parents would kill their own children before the conquerors came in and killed them or before the insanity would set in, as happened. The book of Lamentations, chapter 4, the writings of the prophet Jeremiah tells us the siege of Jerusalem resulted in a famine so severe it led to mothers boiling their own children for food. Siege warfare ends with surrender, starvation, suicide, or slavery. The most famous battle of Israel's history is not recorded in the scriptures. It's the siege of Masada by Roman troops in 74 to 73 BC, which ended in a mass suicide as the only escape from surrender and execution. Today, the Israeli defense forces take their new recruits there, and part of their swearing in is taking the oath, never again. Some of the most barbaric acts of siege warfare, as practiced by the Babylonians and actually by all ancient cultures, including the killing of infants inside the womb and the taking of babies and young children and throwing them against the rocks. And it wasn't just because they were horrible people. It was actually, at the time, a military strategy to ensure that the next generation was not able to rise up against them and fight. It was, in essence, a war on the next generation. So if you don't understand the horrors of the siege and the pain of the exile, then you will not understand the psalm. Psalm 137, then, is a song of lament. We not only just sang one here, the last song of our set today was a song of lament. We learned it during the book of Job. Lament is a communal expression of grief, an opportunity for the Jewish people to gather and tell the truth of their oppression. This lament is further occasioned by more immediate context, we're told, that in the midst of their weeping, their Babylonian captors come and goad them on. Verse 3, sing us one of the songs of Zion. The songs of Zion are scattered throughout the Psalter. One of them is Psalm 48, which opens with, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion. In the far north, the city of the great king, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. So can you imagine the scene that Psalm 137 is depicting? The people of Judah are scattered along the canals of Babylon, lamenting the death and destruction visited upon them. And then, like taunting schoolboys, their captors jeer at them. Sing us one of your songs. How about that one that says, Zion is the city of the great king? Zion is now lying in rubble. Twice in its history, Jerusalem has been leveled. This is the first time. How about sing the one that says, God has made himself known as a fortress, knowing there is no more fortress. Even an attitude of humble curiosity requires some amount of empathy on our part, particularly since Christians have been grafted into the story of Israel. The story of those Jewish exiles in the 6th century B.C. is now part of our story. So we are to weep with them. But can we? 
How can a group of people unflinchingly state, verse 9, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock, and then have the audacity to write that statement down? More to the point, how does a psalm that celebrates little ones dashed against the rocks belong in the same Bible where Jesus says, Matthew 19, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for it is such belongs the kingdom of heaven. With Psalm 137, the Bible confronts our modern sensibilities. It forces us to stop and pause. And to be faithful to this passage, we're not to read it allegorically. Uh, We're not to assert that this is an aberration from the biblical witness. Uh, Modern scholars uh, often insist, well, this can't be God's word. So they deny the inspiration and authority of the scripture, something we're not willing to do. Some Christians will tell you it's all just a metaphor. And others will claim it's just recording angry people, but not God. Unfortunately for them, Jesus quotes from the imprecatory Psalms three times. The same Jesus who said, Luke 24, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I want to contend with you today that a careful and faithful reading of Psalm 137 will lead us to Christ. And in so doing, provide us with the means with which we can engage evil in our world today. But first we have to ask, I know this is a really long, lots of background today just because it's such a difficult psalm. Just what are imprecatory psalms? The word imprecation is derived from the Latin word imprecari, which means the action of invoking evil, calamity, or divine vengeance upon another in an oath or cursing. So many of these types of psalms express the pain and suffering of um, the writer. They incorporate lament, which is a crying out to God in the midst of trouble. Lament psalms include dealing with an unspecified enemy, a problem one faces, or even an issue that you might have with God. Several incorporate a complaint to God about how desperate their situation is. Many are a cry of distress and a call for God to bring about some solution. Imprecatory psalms are laments that call on the Lord to bring judgment on an enemy. And much of our struggle with these psalms comes from false assumptions. We assume they express evil emotions and a desire for personal vengeance against one's enemies. Not so. They express the emotions of hatred. Hatred against evil and hatred against sin. They express a desire for God to take vengeance against his enemies, not mine. Nonetheless, when one considers the themes that runs through the imprecatory Psalms, it'll be evident they actually present biblical values. Examples include the concern for the honor and integrity of God, Psalm 74 the desire for justice and the elimination of injustice in the world, Psalm 58, a longing to see God's justice in order that God's enemies would seek him, Psalm 
83, and an intense hatred for sin, Psalm 139. Many of these imprecatory psalms are a longing to see the cause of God established and justice to be met. But still, nobody likes them. I read a lot of commentaries this week as people try to rationalize or somehow get around these hard words. But then I came across Eugene Peterson, who wrote a great book on praying the Psalms. And he's kind of like a Martin Day Martin Luther in the sense that uh, he's very direct. Um, And he reminds us that despite their good intentions, those who want to remove or downplay the imprecatory Psalms are misguided. And so he writes this. There is a pseudo-prayer that promises its practitioners entrance into the subliminal harmonies of the way things are, putting them in tune with the general hum of the universe. This so-called prayer reduces tension, lowers stress, and the people who are good at it are calm, their voices soothing, and their actions poised. People who pray the Psalms also enter into the way things are, but find the way things are is pretty bad. People who are looking for a spiritual calming don't pray the Psalms, or at least they don't pray them for very long. We commonly indulge our preference for subjecting the Psalms to severe editing, cutting away any negativism that offends piety and disturbs the peace. He says they are wrong-headed because our hate needs to be prayed, not suppressed. Hate is the emotional link with the spirituality of evil. It is the volcanic eruption of outrage when the holiness of being, ours or another's, has been violated. It is the ugliest and most dangerous of our emotions, the hair trigger on a loaded gun. Embarrassed by the ugliness and fearful of the murderous, we commonly neither admit nor pray our hate. We just deny it and suppress it. But if it's not admitted, it can quickly and easily metamorphose into the evil that provokes it. And if it is not prayed, we have lost an essential insight and energy into doing battle with evil. Dishonesty in prayer is already rampant enough without an assist from bleeding heart editors. The Hebrews were a tougher breed. They included Psalm 137 with good reason. The life of prayer carries us into difficult country, a country in which we become aware that evil is far more extensive than anything we ever guessed, having worked itself deeply into the world's ways. That's pretty intense. See, the psalmist here is angry. And seeing evil, we should be too. Yearning for God's will to be done on earth in this sense is not devilish or diabolical. So when we get angry, it's not because we didn't get our way, but angry over evil and angry over sin and angry over the destructive consequences that both bring to people who are made in the image of God. So what do we do? Three things. I'm going to give you the first two right up front. We need to own and then pray our anger. We need to own and then pray our anger. Those are the first two blanks there. What's amazing about this passage is how it starts. It starts by saying, as we sang... By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. 
The willow's there, we hung up our lyres, for there are captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, by the way, the psalmists, for the most part, were musicians. And this is a musician saying, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. So here's what's going on. The captors are taunting them. They're making fun of Jerusalem. The high claims that they're the city through which God is bringing the light and truth to the world. And so what do they say? Sing us one of those songs that you sing about Zion. You guys, the ones in the chains right over there, sing us one of those songs about how you're the light of the world. You over there digging ditches under the lash, sing us about how your God is the God. We're all ears. Sing us one of those songs. What does the psalmist do? He refuses to get cynical, but he stays angry. He owns his anger. He expresses his anger in an act of protest. He refuses to sing. It doesn't tell us what he gets, by the way, uh, for that protest, but surely it was a whipping or something like that. But in protest, he says, I'm going to remember and I'm going to stay angry about injustice. The ancient people were willing to admit that. They're able to say there's real injustice out there. There are bad things that have happened. There's persecution and there's oppression. And I'm out of touch with reality if I don't admit my anger. And if I don't own my anger and if I don't feel my anger. The Bible tells us that. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, which tells us that not all anger is sinful. Especially when it's anger at sin. Jesus himself, Mark 3, Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Here is Jesus Christ, sinless, angry at the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Why? Because the Bible is teaching us that anger is energy expressed towards something bad, which is threatening something good. And so we should get angry when you see something bad threatening something good. And if you don't find yourself getting angry, it's because you're out of touch with the reality of the integrity of God's creation coming under attack. Look around. Fellowship is turning into division. Peace is being turned into conflict. Life is being turned into death. Health is being turned into illness. And what is the psalmist doing here? He's not stifling his anger. He's not just venting it to others. The anger builds in this first part of the passage But then it explodes into sort of a white heat in verse 7, and he immediately begins to pray. 
He's not stifling his anger. He's not venting it. He's praying his anger. (coughs) So in other words, he's taking it to God. He's taking his anger to God, yet even taking his hate to God. He doesn't let his anger keep him away from God. He takes it to God. And that's what the Bible calls us to do. The Psalms don't say, stuff your feelings or vent them. They don't say, stifle your feelings or bow down to them. They don't say, be underaware of them or overawed by them. It says, pray them. And by so doing, you will also come to limit your anger. That's the last part here, verses 5 through 9. Limit your anger. The psalm ends with a clear emotional turn. The psalmist turns from focusing primarily on his grief to focusing very explicitly on his anger. But this turn in emotion is not alone. More important than the turn in emotion uh, in verse 7 is the turn in audience. The, The passage turns from addressing one another to addressing God himself. We can't miss this or we'll misread the psalm. The psalm concludes with an expression of anger, but it's the first time that the psalmist explicitly addresses God. He says, remember, O Lord. Starting in verse 7, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Almost all commentators point out, and I think this is fascinating, this entire psalm is in the form of a trial. So first he has sworn himself in. He stated the situation. He has sworn himself in. Verse 5, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Second, he brings the evidence. He asks the Lord to remember not the Israelites and his covenant with them, but the transgressions of the Edomites, who essentially became the cheerleaders for the Babylonians. And prophets such as Obadiah and Ezekiel record the transgressions of the Edomites as well as the promises of God to punish them. And more than punishing Edom, God has promised to destroy Babylon. And so a... um, swears himself in, brings the evidence, and then he suggests a sentence. And as horrible as that last verse looks, this is what most commentators say. Upon reflection, verse 8 is an appeal to justice. If any fair-minded observer is asked the question, what do the perpetrators deserve? The normal answer would be just the degree of suffering they imposed on others. That's what he says. He proposes a sentence. It should be done to them exactly no more or no less than what they did to us. It's an appeal to simple justice. He swears himself in. He provides the evidence. He proposes a sentence. And here, the most interesting thing, we miss it because we forget what, particularly in Hebrew, the word remember means. The word remember doesn't mean just to recollect as much as it means to take action. For God to remember is to act. And so this man is taking his anger into the presence of God. He's reminding himself that God is a judge. He brings the evidence. He suggests a sentence. And then he says, remember, 
Do something about it. I lay this before you. Here's my anger. See the injustice. Do something. Remember, O Lord, you're the judge. He has limited his anger. Miroslav Volv, I think he teaches at Yale now, as a Christian minister from Croatia. And so many of his friends and family went through horrible suffering during the Balkans conflict of the 80s and 90s. In one of his books, he challenges us to look at evil and then limit our anger. It is a long passage, so I've got sort of a shorter paraphrase. He says, if you think believing in a God of justice, a God of judgment, if you think that leads to violence, to believe in a God like that, you've had a very comfortable life. You've never had your home burned. You've never had your friends and relatives raped or killed or little ones dashed. Unless I know that there is a God who alone has the power to judge and will, and alone has the right to judge and will, if I don't know that, I'm just going to pick up a sword and go get those suckers. I'm going to be sucked right into the violence. I'm going to be controlled by it. Now, this doesn't mean I don't want to seek justice and the redressing of wrongs, but unless I limit my anger with the knowledge that God is ultimately the only one who's going to do vengeance, then I can seek justice, but not vengeance. I don't seek pain. I won't have my life distorted because I brought my anger into the presence of God, the presence of a God who's not just some kind of all-loving, benevolent, esoteric force, but a God who is the maker of heaven and earth, and as we all know at the end of the Apostles' Creed, will come to judge the living and the dead. It's in this context that verses 8 and 9 begin to make sense within the overall story of the scriptures. Now, all along I've said this is a prayer, which begs the question, did God answer it? We want to know what happened. Before the exile occurred, God granted a vision of the prophet Isaiah regarding the fate of Babylon. And it's recorded in Isaiah chapter 13 and has identified the day of the fall of Babylon as the day of the Lord. This day of the Lord is not an ordinary day. The prophets repeatedly reference this day as a day when all wrongs will be made right, when the wicked will be slain and the righteous will live forever. The day of the Lord brings with it not only restoration, but destruction. In Isaiah 13, 11, God declares, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. It's an oracle specifically against Babylon. And it says that at the beginning of the chapter. And Isaiah records God's promise in verse 16, their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. On the day of the Lord, the infants of Babylon will be dashed. Now, this could be a way of saying the person who executes the Lord's justice on Babylon will do so under the blessing of Almighty God. And as it turns out, that's what happened. The Persians did destroy Babylon. In the fifth year of Darius, the Babylonians revolted against the Persians and Darius laid siege to Babylon before destroying it. And he did to Babylon exactly what Babylon did to Jerusalem. And it was brutal. The Babylonians were forced by Darius to do to their own children what they had done to the children of Jerusalem. And now Psalm 137 starts to become clearer. 
See, the community of exiles weeping by the waters of Babylon are calling for the day of the Lord. God has promised his covenant people that he will return them from exile and visit a just reward on their captors. He promised this before he even sent them into exile. And so Psalm 137 is contrasting the day of Jerusalem with the day of the Lord in Isaiah 13. The astonishing image here of dashing infants on the rocks is not the product of a vengeful human imagination. It is a call for God to be faithful to his promise. Instead of seeing the imprecatory psalms as problematic or outdated, these are the prayer pangs of someone who's hungered and thirsting for righteousness. We pray against violently unjust predators who prowl after and pounce on the innocent or the unwarranted assaults of the wicked that terrorize the godly. Now, the New Testament shapes how we pray these psalms because we no longer live in ancient Israel. And we can see how Jesus becomes the fulfillment of these prayers, both in assuming his role as the perfectly innocent king who receives vindication, and in his role in becoming the one who is cursed for our transgressions, bearing the weight of the world's sin. That's not the only picture of Jesus we get. We also need to remember how he will return. God has appointed him as the one who is to execute judgment on the nations. Isaiah prophesies this as well in Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. We know that. We read it at Christmas. We don't read the rest of it, though. The rest of it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So far, so good. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Verse 4 But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The whole thing is a prophecy of Jesus. And we read it again. Because the Apostle John takes those words and uses it in his description of Jesus in Revelation 19. Where he writes, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like that of a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's Isaiah 11. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's why Jesus is worthy of worship. He really is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he will vanquish all evil. To pray the imprecatory psalms is ultimately to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. After all, don't we pray, and as we have most of this summer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? 
Does that not include the justice of God's wrath as well as the grace of his love? As Christians, we long for God's kingdom to come. We yearn for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so in and alongside Christ, we pray for God to enact justice rather than take vengeance into our own hands. We need to learn to pray prayers that are strong enough to meet the challenges and humble enough to cast our full dependency on God. We pray God would thwart the schemes of the wicked with hopes that he might exercise mercy by rescuing the evildoer from sin through repentance or exercise judgment by stopping the schemes that lead to injustice. We may not be under physical threat, but we might be. We might be someday. We're certainly under spiritual threat, emotional threat, mental threat. But these psalms keep before us the daily dangers of believing in a world that does not like believers. At the very least, we need to use these uh, prayers to identify with our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, to identify with the Christian martyrs in China, North Korea, Nigeria, Libya, Syria, Iran, Pakistan, where eight churches were burned and set on fire on Wednesday, and India, where 150 Christians have been killed since May. I had a conversation with Jagar Chinavan. You know he's Indian. Leads uh, Mount Zion Presbyterian Church in Herndon, which is geared towards the Indian American community in Northern Virginia. And he says that the money that's going for the persecution of Christians in India is coming from the United States. His church has been threatened. It's 20 miles away. They've actually been threatened. We need to pray. There are people today, Christians around the world, who will be suffering and persecuted today. So we pray against Satan and against the spiritual forces that war against us, that seek to desecrate our earthly temples by leading us to unfaithfulness. We even direct those prayers against our own sins, Asking God to be ruthless and purging our hearts of evil and temptation. So yes, we pray the cursing prayers, the imprecatory psalms. They're in the Psalter for a reason. These psalms of wrath are not merely permissible, but they are a necessary element in the church's communion with God because these prayers carry an irreplaceable capacity to shape the body of Christ for healing and for virtue and for witness in a world gone wrong. They're not a call to arms, they're a call to faith. We lift our voices, not our swords, as we pray for God either to convert or curse the enemies of Christ and his kingdom. Every time we pray, thy kingdom come, We're pleading for the manifestation of God's kingdom on earth. We want to see believers reflect the character of the kingdom, sinners converted to join the kingdom, and violent enemies interrupted from opposing the kingdom as we await the day of Christ's return. When we pray for justice, we're praying for God to be what he truly is, the judge of all the earth. Can you pray that prayer? Will you? If so, do that now.
and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess our failure to pray about injustice, to pray about persecution, to pray for those suffering under the dominion of darkness. Father, forgive us, for we don't even get angry over those things. We don't lament over those things. Teach us how to come before you and plead for justice, to yearn for the day of the Lord, to want to see the King come in all his righteousness to judge the living and the dead. For he is the one who has taught us to pray. Join with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.